Hello and welcome to the Downtown Drash, a podcast exploring the weekly parasha. My name is Dr. Michal Biton and I am the Rosh Keila of the Downtown Minyan. I'm here with my podcast co-host and colleague, Rabbi Joe Wolfson, JLIC Rabbi at the Bronfman Center of NYU. Today we are recording some thoughts on the Torah portion of Korach. Rabbi Joe, can you tell us a little bit what the parasha is about? Sure, I can. I'd be happy to. Korach is a difficult parsha, difficult in a couple of senses. The story itself is a hard one and a painful one, and it's also just quite a difficult parsha to follow. It picks up after the tragedy of last week in which in the aftermath of the report of the spies, the people are decreed to spend not a few days in the desert on the way to the land of Israel, but it's going to be 40 years. We then hear of a protest by Korach. Korach is the first cousin of Moshe and Aharon, and by dint of that relationship, he is one of the Levian, one of the Levites. And he approaches with an astonishing, fascinating claim. Kol Yisrael kulam kadoshim. The whole congregation of Israel is holy. Therefore, says Korach, why do you, Moshe, and Aharon, as a Kohen, arrogate such significance and such authority to your own persons? It should be, it sounds, an egalitarian holy uh, egalitarian society in terms of holiness without any rank or distinction. This is Korach's claim, and he's not alone. He's accompanied by 250 others, as well as Datan and Aviram, who seem to be part of Korach's group, but also somewhat separate. Their critique focuses specifically on Aharon. But it is Moshe who responds and says, well, we're going to have to have a test, and we will see who is right. We will see whether God is on your side, claiming that there should be no distinction and that we are we are wrongly taking authority, or whether, in fact, God is on our side. It's a strange test. It's to do with fire pans and who is go- whose who's offering is going to be taken up. Is it going to be Korach's, or is it going to be Aharon's? In the end... Of course, Aharon emerges victorious. The earth opens up and swallows Korach's family. A fire engulfs the 250 people who are with Korach. Then, fascinatingly, this I've always been, um, I've always pondered, the frying pans, so that the fire pans of Korach, frying pans sounds like you might make eggs in it, the fire pans of, of incense um, that Korach has been using are not then disposed of or burned to nothing, but they are actually then uh, become a part of the Mizbeach, of, of the altar. The story continues the next day. The people complain that Moshe and Aharon have killed the people of Hashem. A plague breaks out that kills thousands, which Aharon then puts to an end. And then a second test emerges. And here it's no longer to do with firepans, but rather to do with staffs. The staffs from each tribe, from each of the Nisi'im, are taken. And it's Aharon's staff, which flourishes into blossoms. It sort of returns to flower. Therefore, showing that indeed Aharon has been chosen by God. The Parsha concludes with a section on the Mishkan, the 
warning of not entering into it, uh, into the holy place by mistake, and the gifts that are given to the Levi'im in place of them not having any holding of land between them. So that's quite a full parsha, quite a long summary. Korach has gone down in Jewish history as one of the great villains, the internal villains of the Jewish people. But Michal, um, in our conversations until now, um, a, a recurrent theme has been trying to view the stories and the people in the book of Bamidbar through a very sympathetic lens. We spent last week trying to empathize and understand what it was that the spies were going through that made them bring back their report. Given that, Michal, I'm kind of expecting you to feel very sympathetic towards Horach. Is, is, that, is that correct? Well, as you, as you know, I always love to challenge expectations. Uh, so, so if I'm being fully, fully frank, uh, I am totally biased against Korach. He's one character that it's very hard for me to have sympathy for. Um, and even after having read commentaries by, by commentators like uh, the Mea Shiloach or Rabbi Tzadok, who tried to basically say, well, Korach had a different understanding of holiness, a messianic holiness, uh, and didn't fully understand the constraints of the desert, uh, I still have a very cynical read on Korach. I take his words, you know, aren't all the people of Israel, Kulam Kedoshim, aren't we all holy? I take them as somehow having this um, mask uh, of trying to use religious or theological language for what is effectively a political um, revolt, a political challenge to the authority of Moshe and Aaron. Uh, and said authority, as, as I understand it, is one that, that Hashem, the God, establishes. So very little sympathy for, for Korach. And I'm happy to share more, but first let me ask you, what's your, Rabbi Joe, what's your impression of Korach? Yeah, I think I, I think I have to agree with you, Michal. I, I'm, I'm not going to be a devil's advocate on this one. It seems to me like a, a totally cynical manipulation. It's sort of like a picture perfect example of a political slogan which sounds popular, which you know has been repeated in different versions at hundreds of moments throughout history, but in fact really just masks the own power aspirations of the person who is who is doing it and that the, the people are being used as a, a mantle and as a foil for the actual selfish intentions of the person making making the argument. Yeah, and actually I was really reflecting on the similarities and differences between this episode with Korach and the episode that we read about last week with the Meraglim, with the spies. Because there was something very populous about the Meraglim's challenge. They, the, the ten Meraglim who spoke against the land of Israel come in front of the entire people and they speak and the, all the people listen uh, and, and hear them and agree with them. With Korach, it's very different. Korach takes 250 select individuals, right? Which the Mefarshim all, all try to understand um, who these were. But, but he takes these 250 individuals and goes ahead and challenges Moshe and Aaron. To me, this is not a popular revolution as much as it is a group of men who are trying to take away power and claim it for themselves using the language of the people. So, so, let, so let me just push you on, on, on that a, a little bit. You don't like Korach. You don't like what he's saying. 
what is it then that you think of of this claim of the all of the people are holy? Do, do, do you think that is something which could be true, but he's just manipulating it, or you think it fundamentally is false? A couple of things. First of all, I think um, I really like what Yeshayahu Leibowitz says about this claim of, of Kulam Kedoshim, and let me actually just read to you uh, what he says. Yeshayahu Leibowitz says like this. It says, the Judaism of, of Moses, of Moshe, is arduous. It means knowing that we are not a holy people. And he's going to explain what this means in a second. The Judaism of Korach is very comforting. It allows every Jew to be proud and boast that he or she is a member of the holy people, which is holy by its very nature. Um, I'm going to go to a different sentence in what he writes. The uniqueness of the Jewish people is not a fact, it is an endeavor. The holiness of Israel is not a reality, but a task. Holy is an attribute that applies exclusively to God. It is therefore inapplicable to anything in the natural or historical domain. So what, what Leibowitz is saying here is that, you know, Kedoshim Tiyu, we're supposed to aspire for holiness. It's supposed to be what we're supposed to uh, yearn for. Yeah, just the, forget the egalitarian claim. The, the mere statement that we are all holy as opposed to we are all supposed to be holy is already profane. Mm. It says that what is special about being Jewish is already something intrinsic rather than anything which was actually worked towards. Am I hearing you correctly? Well, you're hearing Leibowitz correctly. That holiness is a task as opposed to an innate innate um, essence. Um, mm. So that, that's, that's such a sharp distinction. And therefore it explains why when in back in Vayikra, I believe we discussed this, the verse says, Kedoshim tihu, you shall, in the plural, be holy. That's a different statement to Korach's invitation of holiness, saying the whole people are holy. One presents it as a future task, as, as the great mission of the Jewish people to bring ourselves to that. What The other one says it's already here and we are all that. Right, right, right. But with regards to the other claim, I mean, the other thing Korach is advancing is an idea about egalitarianism, that we're all supposed to be egalitarian and to have no hierarchy, right? It tells why would you appoint yourselves as leaders of the people of Israel? Um, and to me, that's that's the, the assumption that that um, that the fact that we are all holy means there's no hierarchy is mistaken in the sense that the way that it approaches the composition of Jewish tradition and the and, and you know and the Jewish people. Hmm. Hmm. Right, man. So so interesting. So the thing that I always think of when it comes to Korach is the way in which certainly Chazal, the rabbinic tradition, viewed this episode. They saw it as a sort of paradigm moment of how not to conduct an argument. And I think that's something which is, is really interesting. And I, I go so far as to say that it's actually got real significant relevance for, well, I think for every time, because people will have arguments at every moment in history, but especially for our moment, when there's a lot of discussion about how, how we should conduct arguments and how we should listen to others. So there's this famous Mishnah in, in Masechet Avot, which, taught, which distinguishes between two sorts of argument, what it calls l'shem shamayim, for the sake of heaven, l'shem shamayim, and not for the sake of heaven. And the Mishnah says that an argument which is for the sake of heaven, sofal hit kayem, which I think means it will endure, it will last. 
But an argument which is not for the sake of heaven, it won't, it won't endure. And then it tells us or, or asks, so, so what's an example? What's, what's, what's the paradigm, the ideal type example of, see, I threw in a sociology phrase there, Max Weber. Yeah, I, I did it. Um, <laughs> what's the ideal type of, of these sorts of arguments? And the Mishnah says that the Machloket of Hillel and Shammai, these two great sages just before the period of the Mishnah, they, in the way in which they argued with one another, that is a model of arguing for the sake of heaven. And what is the model of how not to argue, of an argument not for the sake of heaven? It's Korach and his, and his, his group, his people. Korach is the polar opposite of Hillel and Shammai in terms of whether an argument is for the sake of heaven. How do you hear that phrase? What do you hear in that phrase, for the sake of heaven, Michal? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that I hear is that there is the possibility of machloket l'shem shamayim, <laughs> um, which I know sounds very simple, but I think in our, in our current moment is, moment is is becoming increasingly rare. That You mean we shouldn't be scared of arguments? No, that may, I mean, yes, we shouldn't be scared of, of argument if it's done in the right way. And I wonder something else. Maybe you can only accomplish certain things, Lashem Shemaim. Maybe you can only accomplish certain missions that are going to elevate, you know, the, the, the name of God and really contribute to the bettering of society if there is machloket, if there is machloket done in the right way. So already the statement feels, you know, radical. Right, radical and, and, and massively, massively relevant and important. And I, I, I thought, I've thought for a while about this, that this distinction between L'Shem Shamayim and not L'Shem Shamayim is not actually anything to do with the content. It doesn't say a good argument, an important argument, is an argument about a certain subject. And a bad argument, a not for the sake of heaven <laughs> argument, is an argument about a different subject. So, you, know, you should argue about these things, you shouldn't argue about these things. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. I think what is being said is that the distinction is not about the what, it's about the how. How does one argue? There is a way of arguing which is L'Shem Shemaim and a way of arguing which is not. I, I think that that's correct, uh, but I would add something to what you're saying. I think it's not only about the way that you argue, I think it's also who is arguing? And let, let me try to explain what I mean. When I look at the words, which say like machloket hilel v'shamay, um, we are talking about two different schools of thought, two different people who are arguing with each other. And then machloket korach v'chol adato, korach and his community, were only hearing about one side of the people arguing. I, I don't know if I'm making myself clear. There's something here about a machloket l'shem shamayim is when there's actually two interlocutor, interlocutors who are talking to each other, they want to hear each other, and, and they're having a real machloket. And from here, it sounds like Korach and Adato, they weren't actually invested in having a machloket with Moshe and Aaron to actually have an exchange of ideas. What is Kedusha? How can we have Kedusha for everyone within hierarchy? How can you claim to have the mantle of leadership and also to have a covenant for all of us? Right. I think that's, I think that's a very um, nuanced reading of the Mishnah quite correct because the the first time 
it's presented as Machloket Hillel V'Shamay, there are two sides. But the second time, it does not say Machloket Korach V'Moshe, the two sides. Moshe is actually not included in it. The Machloket is Korach V'Chol Adato. Is the word solipsistic, when you're, where you're just talking to yourself, really. You're not actually stepping outside of, your, of yourself. And um, if, it, if it's all right, I'd, l- I'd love to share a, a Gemara, which I think really takes this a step uh, further. This is the Gemara in Masechet um, Eruvin, which is, tells us this sort of legendary uh, or mythical um, image of, of, um, of Shammai and, or the schools of Shammai and Hillel arguing. It tells us that um, for three years, they, they, their, their schools, their, their students argued with one another. Each one said, you know, that the law must be established as we're saying. And then at that moment, after these three years, a heavenly voice, a bat kol, descends and says these immortal words. These ones and these ones. In other words, both Hillel's students and Shammai's students are the words of the living God. And the halacha is established like the school of Hillel. And the Gemara then goes on to, um, to tease out what was seemingly the, the real contradiction in what's been said. The Gemara did not say Hillel is right and Shammai is wrong. It said both are right. Not only both are right, both are true. This beautiful phrase, divrei elokim chaim, they are the words of the living God. But once you've said that, says the Gemara, how do you then go about saying, and the halacha is like Bet Hillel? What, you know, once both are true, what makes one more worthy of being established as the, as the, the, the way in which people should act in this world? And it gives an amazing answer. It says, Because they were pleasant, they were calm, they were polite. That's what I'm hearing in it. And they would teach not only their own opinions, but also those of the house of Shammai, those of their opponents. They thought it important that their students and their communities and those who listened to them shouldn't only hear what they had to say, but should also understand that there was an opposing opinion. But Lord, and not only that, concludes the Gemara, Shemakdimin divrei bet Shammai, they would actually place the words of the school of Shammai prior to their own words. They would not sort of leave it as a footnote, as an afterthought, but they would actually give them prominence and pride of place. It's so amazing, this Gemara, because it says, why was the Halakha established like Bet Hillel? Not because they were more right than Bet Shammai, not because they were any truer than Bet Shammai, not because they um, they were more sophisticated in their arguments. It was actually about how they acted, and how they acted was about both politeness and and humanity, and also about making space for their opponent's position. But but Rabbi Joe, uh, I would push back a little bit because I think you're making a, a distinction about things that might actually be related. What if what the Gemara is suggesting instead is that the only way to arrive at a better position is by actually including 
uh, with patience and with generosity, your opponent's thinking, and not only that, making them come first. It reminds me a little bit, you know, one of my colleagues at Hartmann, Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer, he's, he often says, like, choose the most generous version of your intellectual opponent. Like, don't bring the cheapest, <laughs> like the easiest, uh, easiest to knock kind of argument that you're going to disagree with. Bring the strongest, strongest version of what you're going to grapple with, and that's actually going to allow you to refine your thinking uh, and achieve achieve something stronger. So I think it's not only about manners and about decency, which I think are really, really important, but, but, but I read in here a statement being made about the possibility, um, like defining Allah like Betilel, right? It's not only about truth, it's about communal consensus about how we act. And that, the, and that the best representation of that sort of communal consensus comes from a process which not only includes, but elevates and respects the opinions of other people. I think that's, I, I, I love that reading and I, I definitely take it and, and add to it, uh, add it to, to my, my own. And I, I think that they, they, they complement each other very well. And I think it presents a real um, challenge and task for so much of the you know contemporary arguments today, which seem to be made around exactly the opposite of how stupid can you make your opponent's vision be? I mean, the majority of arguments that I read in newspapers, op-eds, online, they seem to be speaking to their own sibur, to their own community, and they do not leave the reader with any sense that the opposite opinion might be one which is really worth taking seriously. So I have to say that I hope that in our contemporary moment at this point in the 21st century, something of arguing in the way in which Bet Hillel argued and its understanding as L'Shem Shemaim returns to, to our moment. Uh, amen. I totally uh, <laughs> agree with your, with your hopes. Michal, um, I wanted to, um, to conclude this, um, this episode with something a little bit different to what we normally do to leave the Parsha for a moment and actually ask you about um, something which, as I know, affected you personally. And that is that, um, sadly, a, a, a couple of weeks ago, the world lost one of the uh, great Torah scholars of this generation, of the previous generation, Chacham Jose Faul. And Chacham Faul was not just a, a great uh, Talmud Chacham and scholar and teacher, he also was your great uncle. So I think we've got um, quite, a, we as, you know, your friends and those who learn Torah from you have got a, a, a unique opportunity to, to hear from you a little bit about what made him so, so special. Could you could you tell us a little bit about his his personal life before we get on to his Torah? Uh, sure, sure. Yes, uh, thank you, thank you for for asking uh, about my, my great uncle. We called him, you know, at Tio Jose at home. Uh, he was my my dad's um, uncle, um, and he was um, he was uh, Argentinian. Uh, grew up there in the Syrian community. There eventually made his way to the States. Studied in the University of Barcelona. Uh, spent time in Lakewood Yeshiva, <laughs> uh, eventually taught at JTS, was a professor, was a rabbi, was a dayan, a judge of Jewish law, um, wrote 10 books, hundreds of articles. Uh, and I think he was the closest that I would ever know to a genius. And I mean genius literally. 
uh, no over 10 languages, was widely read in critical theory, in semiotics, in philology, in classical rabbinic tradition, in Sephardic humanistic tradition, um, Judeo, no Judeo-Arabic, Ladino, like I said, over 10 languages. Um, and, and yeah, he left a real legacy of, um, of Torah and also... I'll add this here, uh, a real legacy of a representation of a Sephardic intellectual tradition that has largely, largely been forgotten. So, so, so I'd love you to unpack that a little bit, because on, on the one hand, as you describe him, um, he doesn't really sound like part of any tradition in that there aren't that many people who've studied at the University of Barcelona and at Beis Midrash Gavoya of, uh, of Lakewood. Uh, I don't think it's a very common pairing. So, so in, in, what, in what sense was he part of a what large tradition and how would you describe that tradition? So my, my great uncle wrote a lot about the tradition of old Sepharad, which he conceptualized as a Sephardic tradition that had its roots in the rabbinic tradition. And when, had when, its you, sorry, when you think Sephard here, do you mean specifically Spain? Yeah, let me, yeah, I'm getting that. Yeah. And for him, the, the renaissance of this intellectual tradition was in Andalusia, perhaps represented by, by the great, uh, great Maimonides. And, and he, and in his books, I mean, he, he constructs this in, in many of his books, so I'm giving a very, very short summary, but he basically argues that throughout history, this tradition um, was, was alive in many places in the Sephardic world, uh, but, but didn't necessarily become popular in the 20th century in the way that we think of, you know, Sephardic rabbis, Yeshivat Porat Yosef, Shas, things like that. So he was a little bit of... Um, you know, I, I, I began thinking of him as a lonely man of faith, in a sense, um, different from the Rav, um, but lonely in the sense that a lot of the people that he saw himself in conversation with were Sephardic giants that not only belonged to a different generation, but that had been mostly forgotten because people just weren't, either couldn't access what they wrote in their languages um, or just didn't know them well enough. Right. In terms of rabbinic figures in this tradition in the 20th century, are we talking about people like Chacham Uziel, the first Sephardi chief rabbi of Israel, and Rav Chaim David Halevi, chief rabbi of Tel Aviv? These, these sorts of figures who are a very different stream of Sephardi rabbi to, say, Rabbi Vadya Yosef? Uh, yeah, I would say specifically that the Haredi Sephardic establishment uh, in Israel, although, again, that's a very, very general statement, and there's so many, so many different rabbis, and uh, you know, in in we, we we haven't done a good job in general of of putting the nuance in the monolithic that we call uh, Sephardic Judaism in the in the twentieth century uh, in Israel and the like. Um, and he had a, a a wonderful relationship with a lot of important Sephardic rabbis. So I wouldn't want to say it's all of them, but I do think it's important for me to the, the the way that I think about him. He really represented what might be the path not taken um, of a certain Sephardic humanistic tradition. Um, that believed in engaging fully with modernity, with um, with academic um, uh, studies, um, with um, and also being extremely confident. Like part of the what made this work really unique, uh, and and there was something um, I don't know if it's radical or just super confident about his work, is that he really insisted in demanding that modernity make space for tradition at its table. Uh, he looked at certain rabbis like Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan or Rabbi Eliyahu ben Amozeg, uh, and he said that this kind of Sephardic rabbis had an approach to enlightenment and emancipation 
that was very different than certain other Western approaches, that they actually refused to give up their national identity, right? Judaism as a nation, as opposed to a Western religion that fits in better with emancipation, but at the same time didn't uh, go to a ghetto without engaging with the big ideas of their days. That's a significant difference to the German-Jewish approach. I, I, hear, I hear that. If, if you could, this might be hard, but if you could pick sort of like one real Torani idea of his that, that people listening should know, what, what would it be? I mean, I'm thinking of Korach right now. Um, I think the most important idea, or one, one of the many ideas that he had was that of, he has a book called The Horizontal Society. Right, uh, and he really, really believed that that there is this this covenant between God and the Jewish people that's born out of this bilateral dialogue, that's in, uh, that really depends on the text and the Torah, uh, and for him the 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 allegiance that we have to the Torah as a text that we all are bounded to, no matter how important we are or how not important we are. I.e. Moshe is as accountable to the Torah as is Korach, as I am, as are you, that that actually is what provides horizontality. In, in that way, there's, a, there's an equality. Yes, it's an, it, well, it's right. So how do you define equality? But it's a horizontal society in which there is uh, freedom. There is, there is true freedom in this sort of horizontal society. And I think he would have been very suspicious of Korach because um, by Korach's intervention, intervention, you could read it as Korach wanted to put himself as a person above the law. Wow, fascinating. So, so would you, if people are interested in, in reading more of his works, would it be that work that you would suggest as, as the one they should start with, the horizontal society? Uh, I think that one is good because it's somewhat... It's a little bit more accessible than his other works on semiotics uh, or, or on pre-Kabbalah Jewish mysticism. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that might be one. I'm also working on an article that's going to give a bit of a summary uh, to, to the intellectual project that he was constructing and that can help people understand uh, the ideological project that he was putting forth. Amazing. And we, we should say that that article, I believe, will see see light in Tablet magazine. So people who are interested in, in reading more of uh, Michal's uh, thoughts on, on her great uncle, Chacham Fa'ur, should, should keep an eye out on, on Tablet. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. This is the Downtown Drash podcast, a project of the Bronfman Center for Jewish Life. OUJLIC and the downtown Minyan. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation. We look forward to learning Tara with you again next week.